So you might have been watching this week, uh, and you've heard the queen is dead, long live the king. And it's, it's amazing to me as we watch the, the uh, funeral and everything that's involved and the pomp and the circumstance and all that kind of thing for uh, her passing. And just watching how fascinated Americans are about the monarchy that we fought so hard to, to get away from, and now we just can't get enough of it. It's just, it's just, it's amazing, interesting uh, conundrum that, that we have and, and, and such. But one of the things that really struck me as I've gone through these last week or so is how the queen was described. And there's a lot of very positive things about, said about her in, in, in a lot of different ways, but there's a word that keeps coming up in just about in every description, no matter who said it, no matter if it's someone you know, over here that we don't know anything about what's going on over there or, or someone there, that, that seems to be common in describing the queen. And that's this very simple word of duty. And it really got me thinking about that because I was watching uh, King Charles III and he was giving his speech about how he would take this weight, he would take this burden, he would take this, um, this on him and he would, he would do his duty. And I was really struck with that because the comparison that I often heard is describing the queen that she did her duty but not that way. She did her duty and, uh, and put others before her and did everything that she could to make sure that it was, that, that her country was, was taken care of, because, you know, that's what a queen does. But she did it with such uh, commitment and such love. It wasn't like it was a duty that was overwhelming her or heavy on her or, or, or something that she didn't want to do. You know, what's really interesting as I thought about duty and especially the series we're in about building strong spiritual families. How do we do that? And I was thinking about duty, and that's a word that we usually don't like to attach to marriage. <laughs> that's my duty. I'm just doing what I'm, you know. You know, that's not very flattering, is it? No, no, nobody nobody's, is mentioning that. It says, you know, on, on their anniversary, or if you're of a couple, whatever, say, well, it's just my duty to do this, you know. And and what's interesting is how that has moved into our relationships. Just a few generations ago, not, not very long at all, the average length of time for a marriage was 12 years. 12 years. Not because they got divorced, but because there was all kinds of reasons why people passed away. Um, the, 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 the mortality rate for a woman giving birth was, was at times up to 50%. It was, and men went to war and died and all kinds of things happened. But then the modern age hit and then this wonderful thing called penicillin changed everything. And all of a sudden we started living longer and marriages went not just 12 years, the average went to 15, 20, 30, on, and even greater. And because of all that, as Americans, we found ourselves in an interesting situation. How do, we, how do we do this? It was very different from every, everything that we have experienced before. And this first generation that really began to experience this is what they called the builder generation. And this builder generation loved each other and they were committed, but at the same time, they didn't want to break apart. And so as the years went on, they just stayed together no matter what. And it was their duty to do so. Well, the boomer generation, which came after that, looked at that and said, uh -huh, I don't want any part of that. 
you're living together and you're not happy and you're just doing it out of duty. I don't want any, any part of that. And they began to move away from that type of, of a relationship that they interpreted, and then it just moved and progressed through the millennials and through the X, Y, Z, whatever letter we're at now. I'm confused. But wait, way down here until we have transitioned to a total, totally transactional relationship. Transactional relationships, transactional marriages are marriages that say, if it's good for me, it's good for you. <laughs> what do I get out of this? It's, 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 and, and so much, as long as it's good for me, as long as I feel good, as long as I'm happy, as long as you're taking care of my needs, and I suppose if I'm taking care of yours, then, then it's good. Then we'll keep going. But as soon as that stops, then all of a sudden they think that's not important anymore. And, they, and marriages fail right and left because we have totally bought into this idea of this transactional marriages. And God has something more. God has something bigger for us. God has something greater in, our, in your relationship, in your marriages. God has something much, much larger. We've been studying Ruth and the book of Ruth, and we've come now to uh, what I feel like is just the most profound aspect of this whole book, and that's chapter 3. It's really, it's really what I call uh, our love letter. Because in this love letter, uh, the, it you see the affections that are there. Now, if you're reading chapter 3 of Ruth, you might think, it's not much of a love letter. (laughs) I've written love letters, and that's not one of them. (laughs) But you have to look close and see what is actually being said. I remember when Lisa and I were dating, the summer before we got married, uh, I was traveling with a, a, a ministry group, and I traveled all summer long, and so we wrote back and forth. And we, we wrote, wrote letters back and forth, and I kept all of her letters, and she kept all, all of my letters. And somewhere, I don't know if it was before we got married or after we got married, somewhere in there, we were talking about all the letters. I think it was after we got married. We were talking about all the letters, and I said, yeah, I have all your letters. And she said, oh, I, I have all yours that we wrote that summer, you know, which, which by the way, are not public, and we're not going to let anyone see them, because <laughs> they were real love letters. And so I, I said, okay, I, I got mine, and I pulled mine out, and I had put them in this huge three-ring binder by date order of when they were, uh, when sh- she wrote them to me. It was, it was it, it, some of you look at me, not surprised at all. And I just, and of course, Lisa's face fell just a little bit. And, and I said, well, you got mine? She said, yeah, 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 I, I got yours. She go like, and she hands me a shoebox. And it was just all scattered in there, and I, I think, I swear, some of them didn't even look like they're open. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, at the moment, I was just like, okay, this, this is the way it is. But sometimes we get confused about what, it re- what really is a love letter, and wh- what does that really mean? And, and how are we conveying the love that we have for one another? This morning, I want to talk about our loving duty, our loving duty. And you might think, ah, I don't think those should go together. If I titled chapter 3, if I went through the book of Ruth and just put a title of what this was all about, it would be called the love letter. The love letter. Because, you see, this is the moment where everything comes together. If, you, if you're not familiar with the story, Ruth uh, or Naomi with, with her husband and her two little boys goes to Moab because there was a famine in Israel. She goes there. Her husband dies. Her, little, uh, her boys grow up. They marry uh, uh, two uh, women from Moab, and then both of those sons die. It's just where a family goes terribly wrong, and that's what happened. 
And then Naomi said, well, I'm going I'm to go back home. And one of the daughters eventually says, no, I'm going to stay here. But Ruth said, I'm here. Ruth says, I'm with you. Ruth says, I'm not live, leaving. Your God is my God. It's, all of a sudden, you begin to get, get a, a hint of really what's going on here, of something so much bigger than just about a, a daughter-in-law hanging out with their, her mother-in-law. So they go back, and then they, Ruth starts working in the field, and it just so happens, it's just a coincidence, right, that all of a sudden, she is working in Boaz's field. Boaz is a very wealthy uh, uh, man, and, and it turns out that he is their Redeemer, in other words, he's the one that can buy Naomi's um, property and marry Ruth and, and restore the family. So we, we have all this story coming together. And then before Naomi even knows that Ruth and, or Boaz is Ruth's redeemer, kinsman redeemer, she says, go there, go to him, and basically propose. Now, if you're reading chapter 3, it's really interesting because it the the writer was was purposely vague because he wanted to show the tension that was there, the risk that Ruth was taking in doing this. She goes and, and as a custom of the day, uncovers his feet and basically says, will you marry me? Not only will you marry me, will you buy my, uh, all the property that is part of Naomi and I'm, I'm part of that package, so will you marry me? And Naomi sent her to... Boaz simply so that she would be taken care of, not even knowing that that's a kinsman redeemer. She comes back and Naomi has found out, wow, God is doing this incredible thing. All this is going on. But I want to draw your attention to chapter 3 and just one verse, verse 10, because I think it says it so well. Look what it says in, in verse 10. It says, the Lord bless you. So Ruth has said, will you marry me? Will you do this? Will you take care of us? Will you, will you buy this property? And Boaz was blown away. And Boaz says to her when she does that, he says, bless you, my daughter. He replied, this kindness, we'll come back to that. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. That you have not run after younger men, whether they were rich or whether they were poor, which would have been very logical. For Ruth to say, I need to take care of myself. I need to go find a husband that will take care of me because they were, even though they were blessed by Boaz and all the grain that he gave them and all the uh, care that he gave to Ruth and to Naomi, they were on the edge of poverty. They had land, they had a building, but they had nothing else. They were house poor. <laughs> and so they, they, they had all this, but it was a desperate situation that they were dealing with, a desperate situation. And so when he looked at her and says, this kindness is great. Now, the word kindness there is actually the Hebrew word. My very favorite Hebrew word in the entire Old Testament is called hesed. Hesed is translated all through the Old Testament as, as loving kindness, as mercy, as grace. It could be translated because it's such a larger word. It's not just kindness. It's not just goodness. It's not just being there. But there is something attached to it that we see very clearly here in Ruth, and that is the fact that it is action is with it, that there is some kind of commitment that's there. That's the loving duty. So that's what he said, your loving duty, your hesed has, has, has overwhelmed me, that you would do this for Naomi, that you would ask for this for Naomi, and that you would uh, ask me to be your husband. And so he, in turn, uh, replayed all of this for her. 
and gave her the kindness that's there. You see, all through this, you'll find Hesed in chapter 1. You'll find Hesed in chapter 2. You'll find Hesed really coming to this incredible climax in chapter 3. And everything about it is that the, the love and the commitment that is there, that is connected, that's all tied in. You see, Hesed, you can't break a, apart duty and love. It is loving duty. And there's something powerful that we need to understand in our relationships with one another, in our relationships with our spouse, that we need to understand what that means, what that means to us. And somehow we've sort of lost that. But you see the the commitment that uh, Ruth had to Naomi. You see the commitment that Ruth had to Boaz and that Boaz had to Ruth and that Naomi had to Ruth. It's all through that, all mixed in. It's just an amazing love letter that you find here. All of it means selflessness. Focusing on selflessness. Moving away from just saying, yeah, I love you. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I'll take care of you. But I'm going to put action to it. I'm going to put commitment to it. This is what we see here. We see it in Boaz. We see it in Rahab. uh, in, 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 In every aspect. Because, you see, Boaz was the grandson or the great grandson of Rahab. And you say, well, who's Rahab? And all of a sudden, you start to see how big this love story is. Because, see, Rahab was a prostitute. You think your family's messed up? That's who She was a temple prostitute of another god, okay? So in Jericho, and so Israel came in, and they were going to destroy Jericho. The spies came in there, and then Rahab saw the, uh, the spies and said, look, I will commit to you. I'll commit to your God. I'll commit to everything. Uh, and they said, okay, this is what you do. You take a scarlet, your scarlet cord, and you put it in the window, and we'll know that you're with us. And it says that, the Bible says that all the walls fell down except one, where Rahab was. <laughs> Because she was right there on the edge. Now, what's amazing is that the scarlet cord that she looked through and said, God's going to keep me. God's not going to destroy me. That scarlet cord was the sign of her prostitution. you got to see the power of that. That the very thing that would be her shame, that would be, that would be the reason that she would be rejected, became the very thing that God used to touch her and to change her and to keep her. Now, all of that's just amazing that everything fell down, her family, and she was safe. But you got to read a little deeper because in Matthew it says that Boaz uh, uh, was a descendant of, uh, of Rahab and Salmon. Now, you're thinking, okay, Greg, now you lost me. Who is Salmon? Salmon was a prince of Judah. He was in the line of Jesus. He was a prince. Rahab ends up marrying a prince of Judah. She goes from prostitute to princess. <laughs> you, you, you think that would go work well in the royal family in England? I don't know. But the point is, it does in God's world. That's the love letter that we need to understand. And so Bo- Boaz has all of that in his family and continues to flow. let that flow out this hesed love, this committed love, this love that says it's not just about me and what I want. You see, we have to move in our relationships, in our marriages, and even how we treat other people from a transactional, what are you doing for me? Okay, what am I doing for you? To a transcendent. That means something higher. That means something that God wants in your life. And I'm going to be real practical with you this morning because this is, I really feel like God laid on my heart. I just want to give you a few um, ways, very practical ways, that in our marriages and in our relationships, we can move from a transactional uh, kind of marriage to a transcendent relationship. 
Here's the first one. Stop bringing up past mistakes and failures. Stop. Just stop. <laughs> they don't help. They never help. But and the only reason you bring them up is because you are thinking in a transactional idea with a transactional marriage. Because if you bring up past, you know what that's all about? That's about the scale. That's, ah, yeah, yeah, your scale is heavier than mine. You, you've, you've messed up, and so I feel better about this relationship because I'm not as bad as you are. See how messed up that is? But that's how we think in, in a transactional way is that we have this scale that bounces back and forth, and we think, oh, it, it, where's mine? Oh, I better do something good so, so, I, so my scale isn't out of balance and, or that uh, I'll do something good and it'll be even greater because she's, hers is not as good. But that's a transactional way, bringing up past. And if you do that, if you, if you just, you know, well, well, remember you did this. Well, you really hurt me there. You see what that is? You're trying to balance the scale. That's transactional. And that's always, always detrimental. It'll never really produce a spiritual, strong spiritual family that God wants to work in you. Don't do it. Don't bring that up. Let that be buried. If there's forgiveness that's needed, then forgive it. If there is a harm that was done, then ask God to heal that and, and, and move on. Here's the second thought. Don't consider your spouse as a rival. It's amazing how we have fallen into this. That is total transactional. Transactional is that's your team and that's my team. Like we're playing fantasy marriage, right? <laughs> fantasy marriage, you got your team. Oh, you got your points, but I got my points. And we just, you know, who won this week? Okay, who wins next week and next week? You know, and, and it's really interesting. Years and years ago, in 1992, there was a book that was written that men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It was considered the most popular non-fictional book of the 90s. Some of you don't even know what 90s look like, but that's beside the point. <laughs> it was, it was, it had a big effect on us, and it is total transactional thinking. The author got his, it says PhD right, right on the book. The author got his degree, an uncredited degree, uh, PhD, in meditation, and had an online course on, uh, uh, you know, psychology, and then wrote the book. And it totally affected an entire generation and how we think and how we move. Because guess what? Men are not from Mars, and women are from Venus. They're both from the very hand of God. God made you and made your spouse, and he made it from the same dirt. just want to let you know. <laughs> it's all there. We're, we're all from earth, which means we are more alike than you realize. But sometimes we fall in this trap of that's you, you think differently, you don't understand me. Sound familiar yet? Come on, I'll get there. I, I promise you I will. You don't care about me, and, and all of a sudden these things start to move in our lives, and we start thinking transactional, and we, they, we see them as a rival, as a competitor, instead of something so much more. You can't live that way. And that's even within the church, even within people, we do that. We, we, we get real competitive or we, or we think, I just need to be better than you. 
I just need, I just need to make sure. We talk about keeping up with the Joneses. You missed that because that's real important. We all want to keep up with the Joneses. The point, the point is that we try, to, we, try to, we try to do that and have that, and that is not the way that God builds his body. We cannot be a transactional body. If it's good for you, it's good for me. A lot of people see church that way. Now I'm just going to start preaching. Just want to let you know. A lot of people see church that way. What, what does it do for me? Is it good for me? Is it good for me? I get, as long as I get something out of it, I'm good. But it's as soon as it doesn't, I'm out of here. Instead of the commitment of I'm going to love you no matter how hard, how difficult it is, and you're going to love me, that loving duty, that's what God's called us to. That's how we have to live. And it is in everything we do. I'm talking specifically about our marriages and our relationship, but it creeps into everything, every aspect of our relationship. Here's number three. Don't let a day, not one day, pass without giving to your spouse. Without giving. Not because it's due, uh, you know, you, you, you got this uh, Big Bang Theory, Sheldon, you ever seen that episode where someone gave him a gift and he had to make sure that it, it matched whatever gift that he gave back? That's just crazy. That's, that's transactional thinking that, that is in transactional relationships that never encourage and never build up, and you will never have a strong marriage if it's all on transactional. You see, the, I believe very clearly the Bible teaches us it's not a 50-50 partnership. You are not in a 50-50 partnership. You're in a 100-100% partnership. You give everything all the time. Always give in. Well, oh, no, that, that is a, okay, okay. Well, maybe, maybe you think maybe it's 80. <laughs> what, what, what percentage is good? <laughs> 65? <laughs> and, and I'm convinced as a husband, if you don't feel like you always give in, you're missing it. Because that is not the Hesed love that God has. You, that is more of a transactional love. When we try to put a percentage of it, well, they need to do this or she needs to do that or it needs to be this. When we put that percentage on it, we are, we're moving into the thinking transactional instead of the transcendent love that, that goes beyond what we can even imagine. That goes beyond just feeling. Feelings are there because it's loving. But duty is there, which means there's a commitment. There's a love that is there. That it's not a burden. It's not a joy. It's something so much greater. Here's the fourth thing. Work to solve and do things together. Do it together. You know what they've discovered? They've discovered that th there is an endorphin. There's some kind of something released when you're in danger. That if you are doing something risky or doing something dangerous or doing something, you know, a little bit, you know, get your heart beating just a little bit, then there is an endorphin there that you are automatically connected in a stronger way with anyone around you. The people around you, if they're going through that with you, if they're going through that struggle with you, if it's a partnership and you're going through it, it actually makes you stronger. It, there's actually an endorphin that says, be more attached to this person. And I think God made it that way because that you're going to need them. Because <laughs> you're trying to do it by yourself instead of working together. And, and we push it aside very often. You know, they've even attached that now because they understood that the Stockholm Syndrome, but they didn't know where it really came from. 
Stockholm Syndrome is where a captor takes a captive, and then in that process, somehow the captive becomes attached to the captor, which is just crazy. What is that? And they, they're, they're, they believe that part of that might be this endorphin, this release, that they're going through this crisis together. Do it together. I, it, it might be hard. It might be difficult. It might be something you got to really work on. But if you do it together, there's something that's binding in that. That's transcendental. Transcendent. And then my last thought, <laughs> or the last point, it's our loving duty. It's our hesed to understand our spouse's misgivings and concerns. It is your duty. It is your hesed. It is your loving commitment to understand where they're at. And you think, oh, there's no way of understanding that. <laughs> it's just irrational. I know. Come on. And we say that and we push that off and they're just being prideful or they're irrational, whatever terms we use. But Hesed says, I know you're hurting and I'll find a way to understand. I'll find a way to sympathize. I'll find a way to feel your pain. You see, all of these, even though I'm talking specifically about relationships and about connections and about our spouses, it's also how we treat and relate to one another. It's how we are. The, 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 the scripture teaches us that if there is not unity, if there is not love, then we have missed everything because that is the body of Christ. That's who Christ is. You see, the Bible teaches uh, not just uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but do unto others as Christ has done for you. Well, that's a high standard. Because what Jesus did is he gave everything so that you can know it, so that you can have it, that we have love. You see, that hesed flows strong all through the Ruth story. Oh, it's, it's incredible. But we need to let hesed flow in our lives. It is our loving duty into everything that God is doing in our life. We need to let that flow. Let Hesed flow. Let that love flow, that, that commitment flow. See, the gospel, the gospel teaches us that the power, the power of that Hesed, the power of that Hesed comes from understanding what Jesus Christ has done for us. Look at Romans 1.16, just really quick. It says the, the gospel, I've just condensed it to get the idea. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. The gospel. What is the gospel? Jesus died for you. <laughs> Jesus gave everything for you. God. God came down. God came down. Not a, a sub-God, not a little God, not just a, a, a tribute of a, of, a, of a God. God himself came down and died for you, gave everything for you, laid everything down with no promise because it wasn't transactional. Get it? <laughs> with no promise that you would do that. Okay, God, since you died for me, I promise I, I'll live for you. No, 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 no. He did it because he loves us. That's Hesed. That's the love that God has for you. That's the love that we have to have for one another. Because that's what moves us away from the transactional to let's make this deal, feel good for you, feel good to me, to tr this transcendent, something that changes everything. Let me end with this verse. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it's talking about, I think, our day and how people will move away from the transcendent love and move to a transactional. And that's exactly what this, because it says that people will be lovers of themselves. Now, I don't think that's part of the list. I think that's the title. 
That's the heading. Let me tell you what people, if they're lovers of themselves, will look like. And it goes through a long list. I thought about reading it to you, but everyone might get depressed. Boastful, pride, anger, resentment, jealousy. And in the, in the middle, you know what it says? Without love. In other words, people that are lovers of themselves, if you love yourself, there is no love. Doesn't that seem like a, a, a dichotomy? Wait, I love myself, and now you're saying there is no love. But that's what he says. If you love yourself, there is no love whatsoever. And then it goes on to say, rather than being lovers of God. Do <laughs> you see the comparison? When you're lovers of yourself, you can't love God because there is no love. If we love ourselves, if we love our, our way, if we love who we are, if we love our rights, if we love this, we don't know God. That's what the Scripture says. Wow. Just hits me right in my heart. Having a form of godliness but denying his power. You get that? What's the power then? The love. <laughs> but you have a form of godliness. People that hang out together, people, relationships with a husband and wife together, they have a form, they have a transactional relationship, a marriage. But they deny the power because there is no love. That's what God's called us to. That's what will change everything. And it, it might, you might come from one situation here, one situation, it doesn't really matter. God loves us. And God's love can pour into us. God's love can change everything about us. I want to pray for you. Because I believe with all my heart, you say, Greg, I want that transcendent love. How do I get that transcendent love? That's, wow, that's out there. How do I live like that? That's exactly what God wants to do if you're willing to allow him to come in your life. Because it's the power of the gospel. You say, I don't know how to get that. Make sure the gospel is in you. What's the gospel? Christ died for me, so I live and I die for others. That's what it's all about. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray your grace and your mercy and your love. Your hesed love just flows over every single person in this congregation. God, help us. God, move in our lives. God, touch me. Help me to love my spouse, my wife, Lisa, my family, my church, my friends, even my enemies, like you loved us. God, that's our heart. And God, we know that only comes because of what you've done in our lives. That only comes because of your spirit that's in our life. So, Father, I pray the Holy Spirit just moves across this place touches every heart. Challenge, encourage, whatever you need to do, Holy Spirit, move right now. Break down walls. Break down pride. Break down barriers. Break down resentment. Break down past accusations and past failures that seemingly keep getting brought up into our relationships now. God, in the name of Jesus, your grace, your hesed, your love, pour into all of us. If there's anybody, if there's anybody that you don't have an understanding of that gospel, you're not living right with God. Maybe you've gone through a form, but you realize, man, I don't know Jesus like I should. I'm going to pray with you, and I'll pray with you right now. And if you're watching online, 
God can touch you wherever you're at. It doesn't matter that you're watching across the country right now. God can move in your life if you're willing to say, God, this is what I want. Come into my life. Come into my heart. I want you to pray this with me. I want you to say, dear Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me of all of my sin. I give you my heart. I give you my failure. I give you my shame. I surrender all of that to you. Wash me anew with your word, with your love, with your grace, with the power of your Holy Spirit. And forgive me of all of my sins. I thank you, God, for what you're doing in my life. And I give you praise. In the name of Jesus, amen.